Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor. Um, before we get started this morning, um, we're going to have a little bit of fun. I love these Sundays. We get to have a celebration Sunday. Celebration Sundays are our opportunity to um, highlight some leaders that um, serve in the background. Um, they do things that, that bless the entire community, but often we don't see them. We, we, we reap the benefit of what they've done, but we don't necessarily... Um, experience or see um, their, uh, their activity and their work on our behalf. And so this morning I want to invite up the Jenkins family. Come on up, you guys. Um, yeah, give it up for the Jenkins. <laughs> Got some shy girls. So the Jenkins. Um, the Jenkins are not on my deacon team. Um, they um, are community group leaders and have been part of our community for years. Um, and, um, and the reason I wanted to highlight them, this is the thing. These guys, not everyone who leads in our body um, has a title of leadership. Not everybody who leads in our body is an elder or a deacon. They are community group leaders and they bear that weight. But, but the reason I want to highlight them and the reason I wanted to bring them up to say thank you is I believe they, they have led in our community in the area of hospitality. They have consistently opened up their home and invited people in. They have, they have hosted bonfires. They have burned Christmas trees. They, they, have, um, they, have, they have had meals, they, they, men's events, and, and, um, and even weddings um, on their beautiful farm. And so um, I just wanted to say thank you to these guys and highlight the fact that, that their hospitality has impacted our community. As they open up their home, as they open up their lives, as they're basically like, this is who we are, and, um, uh, and, and, and we want to invite you into it as, as Julia hosts um, these jewelry parties to, to bless women on the other side of the world who are who are um, working hard to, to take care of their families, as Brad is, is organizing um, work events and showing up to help people move stuff. And these guys have just laid down their lives to be a blessing to this community. And as such, they have, um, we've been richly blessed. And so I have kind of a unique gift for them this morning. Um, I don't know if y'all can see this. We have a whole wall of, of stands up here, but um, I'm going to pull this off. This is for you guys. This is a, uh, one of the pews that came with this building. It's a 10-footer. Uh, thankfully, you have a very large hallway. And, um, and there's a plaque on here uh, from Hebrews 13, 12 that says, Do not neglect showing hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Um, you guys have entertained many angels, many messengers, many servants, um, and you've blessed in ways you aren't even aware you've blessed. And so we are thankful for you guys. We are thankful for your influence in this body and the way you have blessed us. You guys, let's, let's give it up for them. Thank you. Girls, thank you for coming up. Get fist bumps, fist bumps. Thank you for coming up. All right. There we go. Boom, boom. All right. You guys enjoy your brunch. <laughs> They normally attend the next year, so they're coming back next time. Um, all right, you guys, let's go to the book of James. Let's grab our Bibles and go to the book of James. Good job, girls. You did well. Um, 
We're going over to James. We're going to be looking at James 3 through 4. Uh, James 3, 13 through 4, 3 again this morning. Uh, in your study books, I'm doing this thing again where I kind of took one sermon and broke it into two, and so it's going to mess up your study books a little bit. Sorry. Um, but also, you know, because of that, it's knocked off the, the rhythm. Um, I have a special event coming up this next week, and so um, I'm going to be taking next Sunday off um, for that event. Uh, and, and we're going to have Aaron up here, and Aaron is going to be preaching um, the end of chapter 4, which means we're skipping that middle section and coming back to it the next week. Are you guys, those of you with study books, you following me here? This gets tricky. Um, so, so next week, you're going to be studying 4, 13 through 17, okay? That's for next week, and then the week after that, we're going back to 4, 4 through 12. And if that didn't make any sense, that's the best I can do. All right. Um, So James chapter 3, page 1012 in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. Um, While you're flipping over there, last week there was a craze that flashed across the internet. It's amazing how fast things go from, from just appearing on one private little page to suddenly being all over the place. Um, do we have that sound clip? Let's go ahead and play that. All right, so this thing exploded last week. Some of you already know what it is. Some of you have no idea what just happened. But here's my question. How many of you are on Team Yanny? I totally hear Yanny, 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 Yanny. How many of you are Team Laurel? You hear Laurel, 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 Laurel. All right, so the reason I, I even found out about this thing is I'm scrolling through my social media feed, and, uh, and, and I see this thing, hashtag Team Laurel. I'm like, what? Who's Laurel, and why are you on their team? Right? This is one of my pastor friends, and I'm like, what? What? And then pretty soon I see, no, Team Yanny. I'm like, what? What? Team Yanny, Team Laurel, what? Who are these people? What side am I on? And so um, I do a quick Google search and I find out what's going on. And, and I don't know, it was, it was in the evening and I'm laying in bed and I'm looking this thing up and I pull up this, this, this thing on Twitter and, and I play it. And I, and I hear Yanny, clear as day, Yanny, Yanny, Yanny. And Lauren's sitting next to me, and I'm like, Lauren, what do you hear? She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, what do you hear? She's like, well, Laurel. I'm like, what? No, it's Yanny. How can Yanny be Laurel? And she's like, no. So I played it over and actually said Yanny over the top of it, because that's what I was hearing. I'm saying Yanny in, in unison with it. She's like, what? No, they don't, they don't match. Um, so it's hilarious how quickly we go from what do I think about this to who's wrong about this. You know what I'm saying? Like we go from this is an interesting fad to I'm on a team and my team is right and your team is wrong because most of the debate that I saw on this wasn't, oh, hey, this is fascinating how different frequencies hit different people's ears in different ways. There were no conversations like that. It was I'm right and you're wrong right? All over the place. Team Yanny, Team Laurel, we're right, you're wrong. And then a third team crops up. Hashtag who cares? (laughs) And these are the people that are self-righteous about not caring, 
right? Because you got the self-righteous Laurel people and the self-righteous Yanni people, and now you got the self-righteous we don't care people, right? So you got three teams out there competing. Um, and, and this is what this highlighted for me this week. Um, we as a culture, instead of being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and of course this is a funny example, but this happens every week in ways that are very, very not funny, right? This is, this is a goofy example, but the reality is we have a culture that is being ripped to shreds by this exact impulse where we are quick to judge, quick to take sides, quick to gravitate toward conflict. I'm right, you're wrong. Who else is right with me? Hashtag, we're a team, and we're better than you. And hashtag, you're horrible, and you're going to destroy our company, our country, and, and, and if we could just evict you, if we could just send you to Canada, if we could just get rid of you, we'd all be okay. Conflict. Conflict is all over the place from national level, right? Ugly, ugly conflict from the highest levels all the way down to the home level. Some of you had conflict this morning, even on your way here, right? It happens. Conflict. Conflict is unavoidable. Here's the thing, you guys. We can try to make that conflict healthy instead of unhealthy. There are ways to engage conflict in, in, in ways that, that, that actually build intimacy instead of destroying it. That's the promise of the gospel, and that's what we're going to unpack this morning, that, that there is a way to engage conflict in a way that it actually increases life instead of decreasing joy. Now, here's the thing. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to learn how to fight for grace instead of learning, instead of what we are naturally inclined to do, which is fight to win. Okay, so let's take a look at our passage. James chapter 3, we're looking at verse 13 uh, through 4, 3. I'm going to read out loud, you follow along. All right, James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, last week we talked about those verses in chapter 3 about wisdom, right? What is the true nature of wisdom and, and what is... Uh, deceptively passed off as, as wisdom. And, and we defined wisdom as knowing where to go and how to get there, right? Wisdom is one of those terms that we're not quite sure how it really connects with our life. We know we're supposed to have wisdom. We know there are people out that are supposed to be wise, but, you know, how does wisdom play into our daily life? Well, it plays in all the time. Every time we're making decisions about where to go and how to get there, right? Everything from lunch uh, to our careers, to our relationships, to, to I want to have a peaceful home, or I want to have a successful marriage, or I, I want to have a, a prosperous career, right? We're always setting goals of, of where do I want to go and how do I want to get there? Wisdom is what we use to, to set that goal and, and create that plan. So wisdom. Wisdom in, in, in uh, so James goes from talking about wisdom 
in general to specifically wisdom in relationships. That's that transition into chapter 4. Um, we set a goal for intimacy, right? We set a goal for friendship. We set a goal for joy in our relationships. Uh, and then we set a path to get there. And the problem is that path has to take into account conflict. That path has to figure out how grace plays in. And here's the thing. We're either going to be wise or we're going to be deceived. That, those are the only two choices, <laughs> right? You're either wise in how you determine your goal and how you get there, or you're deceived into thinking you're wise, right? Nobody's walking around going, man, I'm a total fool and I like that, right? I am so foolish in the way that I make my goals. I am so foolish in the way I live my life. No, we're all walking around going, all right, I really think this is the best thing to work toward and I really think this is the best way to get there. You're either wise or you're deceived. And, and James pulls back the curtain on wisdom and he says, look, if you really want to know what wisdom is, all you got to do is look at your own character because true wisdom always flows from a heart rooted in meekness. True wisdom always flows from a heart rooted in meekness. So if your heart isn't rooted in meekness, you are deceived about your wisdom. That's, that's the, the dividing line, right? False wisdom um, isn't about knowing the wrong things. It's not about having bad information. It's not about getting bad advice. False wisdom is rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what James says. When we are jealous of what others have and jealous of what we don't, right? When we are ambitious to get, when we are driven by discontent, pride, and fear. When we are restlessly discontent, when we are protecting our pride, when we're afraid of what we can lose, and we're making all of our decisions based on those things, we are rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, right? So wisdom is rooted in humble confidence of meekness. False wisdom is rooted in, in, in this worldly, selfish, um, bitter, jealous perspective that is discontent, prideful, and fearful, right? Bitter, uh, worldly wisdom is all about keeping what I have and getting what I don't. The world is a, a place of limited resources, so I got to fight to keep what I have and fight to get what I don't have yet, right? Genuine wisdom flows from a place of contentment that flows from being loved by God, being humbled by his love, and being able to move out in that strength. Um, so the tension between wisdom and fake wisdom plays out very, very clearly in the areas of our conflicts, in the areas where we have struggles. Now, James begins um, chapter 4 and verse 1 with another provocative question. What causes quarrels and fights among you. So think about that for a minute. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Think about your home. Think about your workplace. Think about your country. What causes conflicts among you? Now, more than likely, there's lots of reasons for conflicts, and most of them have names. You know what I mean? Like, like a spouse, <laughs> a kid, a coworker, a boss, a president, right? There's going to be someone that, yeah, there's, there are lots of conflicts, and the reason we have conflicts is because that person, that person, that person. The reason we have conflicts is out there. But James isn't going to let us get away with that. He says, what is the cause of conflicts among you at the end of verse 1? He says, it's your passions that are at war within you. Now, when he's talking about conflicts here, he's talking about 
bitter conflicts, unhealthy conflicts, toxic conflicts. Why do you have conflicts that rob life instead of give life? The reason you have them isn't out there. It isn't because of that person, that name. It's in here. It's because you have desires that aren't being met. You have passions that are in conflict. They're at war within you. So I want you to catch this. He's not just saying you have conflicts, you have toxic conflicts in your life because it's your fault. He's not, he's not just trying to lay blame on you. He's trying to illuminate the problem, right? The problem isn't just that it's our fault. The problem is we have conflicting passions. We legitimately have passions within us that are at war. And because we have those passions at war, it manifests itself in our life in conflict. We have a desire for enriching community. Every one of us does. That's why we move toward people knowing that they're probably going to annoy us, knowing that they're potentially going to hurt us, knowing that they have the capacity to do things to our hearts we don't want done, but, but we can't help but move toward people. Why? Because we have a passion that drives us for intimacy. We are wired to need each other. We are wired to be in relationship with one another. You can think about it like a Venn diagram, like this image. What happens when I move into relationship with somebody else is, is the two of our lives start to overlap and in that shared space, there is something that I can't get on my own. There is a richness. There is a fullness. There is a joy. There is, there's, there is life that, that I can't get in isolation. I am enriched by having good friends. I am enriched by having, having intimacy with people, whether that's friendship or, or with my wife or with my kids or, or with, with others in, in a broader community. I am driven, I have a passion to be enriched in these ways, and, and that requires me to move my life into the orbit of the lives of others, to know and be known, to, be, to hear and to be heard, to love and be loved, to value and to be valued. When we move into those spaces, our life is enriched. We have a passion for that, a desire um, for, for that experience that we cannot create on our own. It has to be a shared experience. But when you move two people together who are both innately selfish and broken, which is what Scripture tells us about ourselves, don't be insulted. We put ourselves first. We put our desires first. We think our plans are always the best. When you put two people like that in relationship with each other, you know what's going to happen? Conflict. Conflict. There, there is going to be difficulty because you have different expectations, different needs, different hopes, different ways of doing things, different upbringings, different things that seem normal and totally expected to you. And you put these two people together and suddenly you're dealing with somebody who's not just like you, who doesn't approach problems the same way you do, who doesn't necessarily have the same goals you do, who you may be moving toward the same thing, which is the benefit of intimacy, the benefit of friendship, the benefit of, of, of mutually sharing life. But suddenly you find that there are these areas that don't match up, and it creates tension, right? You have sharp edges, they have sharp edges. And when you come into close contact, those things start hitting each other. And what ends up happening is you have conflicting desires. I value what you bring, but I resent what you take. 
I want what we have created together in this overlapping of lives, but I resent the pain that comes with it. I resent your sharp edges, the way they challenge me, the way they hurt me, the way they, they, they make me uncomfortable, the way they, they provoke in me uh, discomfort or even shame. We want the shared space, so we fight for it, but we want this shared space on our terms in ways that don't hurt, so we fight against it. And when it feels like, um, when it feels like you take more than you give, I fight against you. When it feels like what you're taking from this overlapping circle of intimacy is greater than what you're giving, you become the enemy. And so I start fighting against you. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I'm not motivated by love for you. I'm motivated by love for myself. I'm not motivated by your good. I'm motivated by the good you give me. And when what you give me is less than what you take from me, you become my enemy. I feel entitled to easy relationships, to benefit from your presence, from your humor and, 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 and your wisdom and your intelligence and, and, and your good nature without all the other stuff that comes with it. And you know what ends up happening when, when that happens is toxic conflict. When you become the enemy, now the conflict is no longer about fighting to move into intimacy. Now it's about fighting to move away from pain. And that becomes toxic and, and that becomes death. And that's exactly what James says. Take a look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We have two parallel statements here that seem really, really different. I want something, and I'm not getting it, so I murder. I want something, and I'm not getting it, so I fight and quarrel. And what James is saying is that these two things, as different as they seem in the expression of life, are really very, very similar. They're on the same continuum. They're just at different points along the path right? My, my, my anger towards you that leads me to fight and quarrel is actually the same exact anger that would cause me to remove your life. Because the discomfort you bring into my presence is so much greater than, than the benefit you bring. We, we, death, death is what results. Um, death. Uh, maybe different spots on the continuum, but it's only a matter of degree. The bottom line is, we move into intimacy, wanting something, needing something, compelled by our passions to get something. And when we don't get it, we feel frustrated, we feel defrauded, we feel fear, and we feel shame. And shame is one of the most powerful emotions we can experience in relationships. When I feel like I am exposed and now vulnerable, when I, have been, when I, have been, when I put my hope in something and that hope wasn't fulfilled, man, I just feel like a fool. When I feel like I've moved into a place of intimacy and that in intimacy has been betrayed, I feel, I feel exposed in ways that, that, that make me want to pull back and hide and protect. And so I, I build defenses and I attack. Because shame is one of the worst experiences the human soul has ever had. That feeling of exposure without any protection. You aren't doing for me what I want you to do, so I get angry and I lash out and I murder now, some of you are going to be like, Steve, I, I hear what you're saying, and the logic makes sense, but that doesn't ring true in my life because I'm not like that. I, I, I don't lash out. I avoid conflict. That's my, you know, I just, 
You know, I like the old maxim, you don't have to attend every fight you're invited to. I just check out. I just leave, right? And, and, and other people are like, well, I just like to make people happy. I don't check out. I just, I do my best to just keep people happy. All of, I just keep the balance. I keep the peace. I'm, that whole thing about murdering people, that's just not me. That doesn't ring true. All right, there are three unhealthy ways that we respond to conflict that I think it's important that we see. And all three of them, by the way, result in death. Um, and, and all three of them are an exercise of personal power after the experience of shame. After we feel exposed, after we feel vulnerable, after we, exper- we, we exercise our power to mitigate that experience, and, and we're going to either move away, or we're going to move against, or we're going to move toward. So let's talk about those in order. First of all, moving away, also called withdrawal. When we move away, in the face of conflict, we exercise our power to withdraw from the painful situation, right? And, and, and there are a lot of ways this manifests itself, right? It can be just emotionally, like just shutting down emotionally in the middle of a conversation. And, and, and you just kind of just bring it all in, you wall it off, and you're no longer emotionally available or vulnerable in the conflict with the person you're having conflict with, no matter how important they are, whether it's your boss or your spouse or even your child. You just withdraw. You emotionally wall it off, and it becomes this thing of logic or this thing of reason, but you're no longer fully personally present. You've just pulled that part away. It can be emotionally. It can be verbally. Somebody who withdraws may just stop talking, right? There may be an argument going on, or there may be an intense discussion, right? Um, I asked a couple one time, uh, how do you guys fight? Oh, we don't fight which is always a red flag to me, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? We have intense fellowship. Oh, okay. All right. So tell me about your intense fellowship. So some of you, when you get into those times of intense fellowship, you just stop talking. It just is, it's too difficult. It's like, so you just withdraw. Some of you physically remove yourself from the space. You will actually get up and leave. You will leave the room. You will leave the house. You will leave the meeting. You will leave. You will just get up and go because your way of dealing with shame is to create separation. Your way of creating shame is to exercise your power to move away. And in your brain, it makes perfect sense because you're like, isn't it better to leave than to fight? Isn't it better just to kind of calm it down, to pull away, to create separation instead of having this fight? Fights are bad. It's much better just to pull away. All right, listen, withdrawal. Withdrawal murders. What does it murder? It murders intimacy. Notice what's gone. The shared overlap space of mutual intimacy and trust. When we withdraw, we kill intimacy. And if we withdraw long enough, the relationship's completely dead. If we withdraw long enough, the relationship is dead. Because what we're doing is we're killing intimacy, right? And, and to cover our shame, those of you who withdraw, you need to realize what you're doing is you're actually inflaming the shame of the other. Because when you withdraw, what you're doing is increasing their fear because they were in this intimate space of, of shared overlap life. And they were trusting you to meet them there. And maybe they weren't doing it well. Maybe they were really unhealthy. And we'll talk about that. 
But when you withdraw, what you do is you're communicating to them, I'm no longer available to you. I'm no longer here with you or for you. And that inflames within them fear and shame. It kills intimacy. Some of you are like, man, that's definitely not me. That's not me. I like to deal with conflict directly. I just like to, you know, when there's something wrong, man, I'm going to put it on the table. We're going to talk about it. If there's something going on, I don't, I don't like to just dance around it. I don't like to pretend it's not there. I just like to move in and talk about it. So when, when this is a second form of toxic conflict. When, when you experience shame, when you experience this pain in the relationship, what you do is you power up. Instead of powering away, you power up. We will deal with this, and we will deal with this now. We will talk about this now, right? Which is a subtle way of dominating the other. Often the way this is manifest is is the person who's moving uh, against the other person doesn't really think of themselves as an attacker. They think of themselves as an explainer. If you just understood what I was saying, if you just understood my motives, if you just understood what I'm trying to say... We wouldn't have any more conflict because you'd see that I was right. The solution to the conflict for the person who powers up is is winning. And the way I win is, is if you could just see how reasonable I actually am, we wouldn't have any more conflict. If you could just see how logical I was, we wouldn't have any more conflict. If you could just see what my true motives were, we wouldn't have any more conflict. And, and, and so I power up so that you will hear me. Because I think in hearing me, you will understand me. And when you understand me, you're going to just understand just how reasonable and loving. And, and So here's the thing. People who power up, people who move against, they're often yellers. Because when we power up, we often will, will use multiple forms of powering up. Part of powering up is becoming more aggressive in the conversation, trying to dominate the conversation, trying to to be heard instead of being heard. You just need to hear me. You just need to understand me. And when you don't, that, that urge to power up might come out in a raised voice, right? When you raise your voice at your spouse, when you raise your voice at your kids, you are moving against them empowering up. It's a way of trying to silence them. It is a way of trying to minimize them. It is a way of trying to say, you need to take up less space in this argument because you're the one that's the problem here. But it's not always about yelling. There are people who can do this very, very quietly. They, they can be quiet power-uppers. <laughs> they can just very, very persistently and incessantly chase you down. Did you, do, do you really understand what I'm saying here? Did you really just, did you catch what I'm saying? Let me just, let me just say it one more time for you. Let me try another, let me try another set of words that are actually almost identical to the words I've already said, but I'll say them 10 more times because obviously you didn't understand the first 50, right? Powering up is a way of dominating because what I'm trying to do is ultimately get my voice to be heard because I really think that it's my voice that's going to bring a solution to this. What's murdered here? intimacy, right? When we power up, we, we basically eliminate the other person's voice. 
and in eliminating the other person's voice, we're actually destroying or injuring that shared space of intimacy. It is no longer a mutually enriching space that, that challenges me and enriches me. It is now my space, defined by my perspective and my view. So I am, in a sense, murdering the space of intimacy by murdering the unique and individual voice of the person with whom I am in relationship. It is my voice that matters, my reason that matters, my argument that matters. Some of you are like, well, Steve, I don't do either one of those. I, I, don't, I don't power away. I don't power up. I don't, man, I, I'm just good at making people happy. I just do my best to make people happy. This is a third form of toxic conflict. Uh, moving toward with the purpose of appeasing. So this third form of conflict is, is um, a person who basically says, you know what, I just hate conflict. It doesn't really matter who's right. It doesn't really matter what's happening. I just, I just, it's better for there to be no conflict. And so what I will do is I will do whatever I need to do to make you happy. I will be whatever I need to be to make you happy. I will I will yield myself and bend myself and mold myself to your expectations so that we will not have conflict in our relationship. I may feel personally frustrated, but I'm not going to express it. I may have unfulfilled desires, but I'm not going to talk about it. I may have deep fear, but I'm not going to share it. And I may feel real shame, but I'm not going to invite you into it. Because I need to do whatever I need to do, and I need to be whatever I need to be to keep you happy, because I hate conflict. And because I hate conflict, I, I just become whatever I need to become. I move toward in appeasement. Conflict won't help anything, so I hide it, I deny it, and I give up. All right, what's murdered here? Intimacy, once again. But this time, the intimacy isn't murdered by my dominating the other person, but by allowing the other person to dominate me. In this case, intimacy is destroyed because I willingly give up my voice. And what that does is, is again, it's that mutually shared space of knowing and being known, loving and being loved that is enriching. It is our passion for, for that space that drives us into intimacy. And when someone moves toward the other continually in, a, in appeasement, what they do is they undermine our ability to know and be known to, because you're no longer known. You're no longer sharing who you are. You're no longer coming with your unique set of experiences and perspectives. And, and, and no, you're just doing what you need to do and being what you need to be to, to avoid conflict. You're killing yourself. You're murdering your own unique self, your voice, your experiences, your, what you bring that is of value. And it may be because you think personally it's not of value. It may be that you, you, you know, whatever, life has so shaped you, but, but you just come and, and you just kind of slide under the, the radar and, and, and deny your voice and lose your sense of self in order to avoid conflict. All right, this is what I want you to catch, you guys. Whether you power up or power away or power down, these are all unhealthy forms of dealing with conflict. They're all worldly forms of dealing with conflict. They're all based not in humble meekness of joy, but in, but in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. They're our ways of trying to, to diffuse or avoid conflict in a way that protects our self-interest instead of moving toward the other 
in love. Now, of course, these different combinations can create all kinds of different um, and some of you are already doing that. You're analyzing yourself, trying to figure out where you are, but first you analyzed your spouse or your kids or your boss or your friend, right? That's what you did. And, 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 and so there's all kinds of unique combinations here, and, and each one creates different kinds of balances, um, but they're all, here's the thing, when people are operating in these ways, we're both impoverished by it. Right? So, so you might have somebody who powers up with somebody who powers down, and they might be able to create an equilibrium. Somebody who marries somebody else who's a power up and a power down, a dominating and a peaser. They can create an equilibrium, and, and, and sometimes they can even sanctify it with biblical language. Right? The power up guy is the dude, and he calls it biblical headship, and the power down person is the gal, and she calls it biblical submission. And, and, and the guy's like, look, we're the perfect marriage. I do whatever I want. I say whatever I want, and she follows my lead. No, you're a bully, and you're abusive. That is not a biblical example of marriage. That is not a biblical example of intimacy. Ladies, you need to hear me. If you are in a relationship like that, it's not okay. And that is not what the Bible calls you to. If you have, uh, you are in a relationship with somebody who is verbally and emotionally abusing you, that person needs to be confronted, not submitted to. That's not submission. That is, that is an ungodly form of self-abuse. So, Sometimes you can create balancing patterns of, of dysfunction. Not everybody who powers up is abusive, although they have, they're on the same continuum. And not everybody who powers down is, is, is um, you know, has a personality disorder. Same con- you know, it's that same thing. Like they're, but it creates a dysfunction. And when those people find uh, an equilibrium, a balance in that, what you need to realize is they're both robbed from genuine intimacy. At the heart of their relationship, instead of being a vibrant, vital place of increasing intimacy, of knowing and being known, loving and being loved, what you end up with is just a balancing act of dysfunctions, right? So which one do you think is the worst? Like if somebody's getting married, which two patterns do you think are the worst to put together? They're all bad. I'm just gonna, they're all bad, and they all end up robbing intimacy. But some actually create more difficulty than others. A lot of people would say, well, it's the power up and power up. If you have two people that are continually powering up, all you're going to have is fights. Okay, that can be really loud, right? And, and it can be really difficult, but that's not the worst. Because two people who power up, um, man, you're going to have fights, no doubt about it. Um, but they're both right there. They're both right there. And so eventually they're going to get exhausted and figure out how to actually have a conversation, Right? The actual worst combination is a power up and a withdraw, a power away. Because what ends up happening is the person powers up thinking that's how they're going to renew intimacy. The person who powers away creates separation, which increases the anxiety and the shame in the person who's powering up. So they chase harder and they run harder. When you have a power up and a power away person who gets married, 80% divorce rate within the first five years. That's, that is one of the least sustainable combinations. But what I want you to hear, the goal here is not to become a more sustainable version of, of, of dysfunction, right? The goal here is to actually learn how to move through conflict in a way that honors one another and, and, um, and doesn't kill intimacy, but actually gives it. It doesn't rob richness, but actually gives it. So, so how do we have the kind of conflict that removes barriers to intimacy? How do we have the kind of conflict that, that actually enriches us instead of depleting us? Um, well, according to our passage, we need wisdom. 
which means, first of all, we need to be rooted in meekness. We need to be rooted in meekness. If we're going to genuinely have conflict that increases the space of intimacy instead of robbing it, actually increases our ability to know and be known, love and be loved, we need to be rooted in, in meekness, right? True, true wisdom is rooted in, in meekness. And there's only one way to grow in meekness. I'm going to remind you of a verse in James 1.21. We studied this uh, a while back. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, when we unpacked that, what we talked about is, is there's only one way to grow in meekness, and that is to receive the implanted word with meekness. In other words, we need to hear about the love of God and respond to the love of God and keep hearing about the love of God and keep responding to the love of God. It is the only way we can grow in meekness is to first respond in meekness to the God who loves us. We need to continually receive to hear the message of the gospel and respond to grace. We need to respond to God's love by letting it humble our hearts and and free our wills. We need to respond to God's love by letting it break us. See, God moves toward us in humility and invites us into the shared space of intimacy. That's what he does. He moves toward us in humility and he invites us into that shared space of intimacy with him to be enriched by his love, to be be set free by his grace. But we need to receive that grace. We need to actually engage that grace. Not receive it like, okay, I claim it, but receive it like I respond to it. Like, like I actually receive that love. I am loved. And I respond in, in, in the joyful humility that comes from being loved. And that shared space of intimacy actually increases the humility and the meekness. It actually changes me. I am enriched by his love. See, ironically, that's what James calls, James calls out in verses 2, two through 4. Uh, of our passage where he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What, what, God's, what James is saying is, is that same dysfunction we bring into human relationships, we bring into our divine relationship. We approach God as a means to an end. We want the benefit of intimacy without the hard stuff of having to learn how to submit in intimacy. I don't want to have to yield to a God. I, I just want that God to bless my... So how does that manifest itself? When everything's going great in my life, do, do I draw near to God in intimacy? No, I kind of forget he's around. I don't have because I don't ask. I don't ask because I don't feel like I need to. I don't have any felt needs that drive me to God's presence. So, so I know he's there, but I'm not drawing near to him to be loved by him. I'm not drawing near to him to receive his grace. I'm not drawing near to him because, because he is a father who loves me and has adopted me into his family. He's a means to an end, and if I don't need him, I don't need to draw near to him. But when the sudden need comes in, then I draw near to him because I'm like, God, I'm suddenly in trouble. I need you to do this thing for me. I have this problem you need to solve. I, need you to, I have this person I need you to get rid of. I, need, I have this job I need you to get me. So we ask and we don't receive. Why? Because what we're asking God to do is give us his blessings without giving us himself. We're asking God to give us the blessings of intimacy without us actually having to move into that place of intimacy with God. We're asking him to be a means to an end, and he will never give his blessings to us without giving us himself because he can't. God's blessings are wrapped up in his character and his nature, and they are set free in our lives as we learn to respond to the love of God, to draw near to the grace of God and undone by the grace of God. 
So James is saying, man, that same dysfunction we bring into our human relationships, we bring into our, our God relationship. We need to change that. We need, to, we need to approach God with meekness to grow in meekness. We need to approach God humbly, saying, God, I have a need. I don't even know how to respond to you. I don't know how to be loved by you right now. Will you help me be loved? I know the gospel, but I'm having a hard time responding to the gospel. I know about your love, but my heart is undone by your love. God, will you meet me in this place and help me learn to enjoy this space of intimacy with you? where I will hear the invitation of grace and I will delight in coming into your presence. God will answer that prayer. You know why? Because you're no longer approaching God as a means to an end. You're approaching him as a person to be known, a God to be delighted in, a relationship, a place of intimacy to to, to be enjoyed because God is ultimately delightful. So the first step in solving your human conflicts, toxic conflict, is to move back into relationship with God by responding to the grace of God. Are we there on, on number one? We've got to be rooted in meekness in our relationship with God if we're going to be able to move forward, right? So that's first. Second, uh, we need to pursue the right goal, which is shalom. See, when we're in conflict, a lot of times we set the wrong goal. Ungodly wisdom says that the goal is winning. Ungodly wisdom says that the goal is, is, is having no conflict, But the real goal is shalom. Shalom is the fullness and the flourishing of life. Shalom is a word that means peace, but it means a lot more than a lack of conflict. It means the presence and the fullness of life. Our goal in our relationship should be the shared experience of shalom, the fullness and the flourishing of life. So so rooted in grace and in love and honesty, I want to move towards you. I love you, and I want to see you flourish in shalom. I want to see you flourish, not just me, because I know that it's together we share this incredible dynamic experience of the fullness of life. And so when you love someone, you want to see them flourish. When you have that as your goal, listen, sometimes it's going to compel you to say hard things. But not because you're angry. Not because you want to attack somebody. Not because you want to remove their voice. Not because you want to remove their dignity. Not because your pride has been wounded or your shame has been exposed. But because you love them and you know that you need to say this for them to grow. For them to experience more of the fullness of life. There are times you're going to have to say the hard thing. As Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. See, when we are in those false patterns of conflict resolution, we are the enemy. We're giving kisses where there aren't any. We're pretending instead of giving the honest word, which sometimes hurts and is real, but it's the word that needs to be said in love, but it's delivered from a place of humility. It compels you to say things that are hard, but, but it also gives you the right to say them because when you love somebody like that, they're going to be more inclined to hear what you have to say. When they know you love them, when you know, they know you're for them, when they know that you are committed to their flourishing, it helps lower their defenses to receive the difficult word. And it compels you to say it. It compels you to hear the things that are hard. When you want shalom, when you want to move into this mutual place of flourishing in relationship with another, it allows you to lower your defenses, to hear the things that are hard to hear, to let somebody confront you about things you don't like to be confronted about, to show you that you have patterns of behavior or attitudes or words that are harmful or hurtful, even though you didn't know they were. It allows you not to be so prickly and defensive. It allows you to receive and be reasonable because it gives you courage. It helps you set the right goal uh, of a flourishing shared life, and it also helps you get there in the right way, which is um, honest intimacy. See, the goal now isn't just having my needs met first. It's about sharing intimacy. And so what happens is, is I fight for intimacy by leading in my meekness, and then I invite you in 
to the meekness that God is working in me. I lead in humility and I invite you into this place of humility. It's no longer about being right or comfortable or even about being loved first. It is about loving first in the humble strength of the one who radically loves me. Here's the thing. When you're in this place, when you know you are loved by God, approved by God, dignified by God, you no longer have anything to prove or anything to protect. That allows you to move into conflict in a way that is humbly gracious. It allows you to hear things that are hard to hear and say things that are hard to say, but it allows you to do it in a way that communicates love. It allows you to lose the fight for the greater good of the shalom of the relationship. There are times you need to lose. There are times you need to be convinced you're right and not say so. It is meekness that allows you to exercise that strength to allow space for the other person's perspective, to allow space for for their experience, even if it conflicts with what you think is true, to honor them, to love them, to create space for them, to listen to them, and then to be humble enough to say, maybe I need to learn from what you're saying instead of it's different from what I think is true. It allows you to remain calm and secure even when you're being attacked because you love somebody who's broken and at times they're not going to love you well. At times, they're going to love you in their broken ways of solving conflict by withdrawing or attacking or by appeasing. It allows you not to be sucked into that cycle of mutual hurt. It allows you to be humble, calm, gracious, forgiving, and loving. When you're rooted in meekness, you are rooted in strength. And when you are rooted in that strength, that allows you to become the, the anchor for the other person to love them even if they don't in that current situation know how to receive your love. This is the kind of courage that will even give you the ability when necessary to move toward those who need to be loved even though they're hard to love and to move away from people who are abusive even though you know by moving away you're going to hurt them because it's for their good. It's in love for them. It allows you to bring the fullness of what God has shaped in you, the fullness of who you are into the relationship, honoring who you are and honoring who they are and honoring the mutual space of intimacy you can create together. All right, I'm going to close us in a word of prayer and um, uh, just ask God to meet us in this space. We're going to share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us first. Father, I thank you that, once again, you are the ultimate model of um, the things that we're talking about. You don't just tell us to go do things without yourself being the example of them. You have modeled this kind of humble, meek love to us, even though we accuse you and often attack you, even though there are people here this morning who, who are angry at you because you didn't answer their prayers. Even though your prayers were an attempt to manipulate, to get from you what you can give without honoring you and loving you, Man, you still love us even though we do that. You're still present with us. You you still give us this ever-present invitation back to the table of grace. Lord, humble our pride. Dignify our shame. Cover us with your love so that we can be rooted in meekness. We can be rooted in gentle strength so that we can love those who are difficult to love knowing, Lord, that we are difficult to love. 
Lord, will you enrich our relationships, our marriages, our relationship with our kids and our friends. Help us to be a, a source of shalom to our workplaces and our community, knowing, Lord, that those who sow peace reap a harvest of peace. Lord, work this in us. You guys pray. We're going to share communion in a moment.